Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Real Rant, the place where we like to rant about the real stuff. My name is Brennan McGee, and sitting across from me on occasions is the spectacle with spectacles. Who are you, dude? Nick Carter Davian. How you doing? I'm real good, actually. I had a really, really good day. Like, really good day. Good. Yeah, I don't know why I woke, I, well, I woke up. I did wake up. That's why I'm still here, and we're recording. But no, I... Uh, I woke up this morning and I felt weirdly refreshed and like ready for the day, even though I had had like five hours of sleep, um, which is kind of average for me. I'll get like five hours of sleep. Anyways, this morning I just caught me off guard while I was like ready for the day. I even had time to meditate today. Whoa. Which was weird. How was that? It was really, really good. Did you find Nirvana? No, no. I had some, you ever, you've meditated right before. I meditate, uh... Four times a day, four times a week. Gee, many crickets. Okay. Uh, so that's a lot. So yeah. you meditate. So you're a pro at meditating. I, I do well. So I like, <laughs> you dabble. <laughs> I think the thing for me is, is like, I forgot that experience that you get when you meditate, when you do guided meditations. Mm-hmm. I don't and, do guided meditations. Oh, I love a good guided meditation. No. I love it. But the thing I like about it is the fact that you'll still be awake, but you your body doesn't move. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you don't want to move your body. Like, your inner self is just like, okay, let's move. But then you're like, mm, I can't do it. So How do you sit when you meditate? I just lay down. You just lay down? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I put like it. a, like, early this afternoon, I put the my sleep mask oh, yeah. thing on. And then I uh, I just laid back and took, like, a 20-minute nap. Okay. It was like, it's pretty much like power napping. Yeah. Anyways. It sounds like power napping. This is a pretty intense conversation, but I figured it would be good filler because we're not going to really do a whole lot of introductions of why we needed this guest this no, week. No, not at because all. Because we've done it a thousand times before. But who is our guest this week? Oh, me. Oh, it's <laughs> my turn to speak. Okay. Uh, I, I'm Zach. I'm back again. Back uh, with the band. Brand I don't new track. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I was on, but it was, what, like, uh, Avengers. M- months ago? Avengers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I keep getting blown away, because every time I come back, there's, like, new equipment. It's, like, new stuff. We're still in a basement. I won't lie to the people out there. It yeah. still is what it is. But, but the audio quality is prime, though. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. I did spend a pretty penny uh, with the crew on uh, finding the good stuff and <laughs> making sure that... The audio quality sounds good, despite the fact that we are still in a basement suite <laughs> in Victoria, right. British Columbia. You know, you don't want to sell out too quickly, though. You know, I think like moving to the basement, that's like 150, you know, yeah. probably there. You, you got you to gotta take your time. All right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, Zach is a businessman. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. No, but Zach, uh, Zach's been on the show before. He was on the Avengers Affinity War podcast. Avengers. Uh, you did What, what we, we Do in the Shadows. shadows. Uh, you did Casablanca. One did of Casablanca? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Your favorite film? Definitely my favorite. Yeah, uh, definitely old-timey favorite. But this week, we are doing Reservoir Dogs. That's right. All right, great. We know who Zach is. Let's get on with the show. Sound good, Nick? Sounds good to me. <laughs> Sound good with you, Zach? Great. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy. Oh, uh, Let's roll right over the plugs. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Brendan underscore McGee. That is B-R-E-A-N-D-A-N underscore M-C-G-H-E-E. Thanks, Mom and Dad. And Nick, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at N-I-C-K-C-A-R-T-E-R-D. And you'll be able to find me hunting in the woods just north of Campbell River. Don't look me up. I don't want to be Where are you going hunting? Uh, Next week. You didn't even invite me. Well, I just decided I'm going to go right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to make the joke just to make the joke yeah, that's all. yeah. Right. i'm not even going i don't know <laughs> oh. hey if all you right. find bigfoot just leave him alone oh yeah he doesn't need to be bothered thanks yeah. and if you want to follow the show you can follow us on twitter at the real rant pod and if you're a fan filmmaker or creator 
go ahead and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you are a filmmaker or a creator. We love working with you, and we want to keep doing it. So, yeah, get in touch with us. But that's also not to discount our fans out there. have been hearing a lot of good things about the show, and we want to keep hearing those. So, yeah, keep on getting in touch. If you want to send us an email, you can send us an email at therealrantpodcast at gmail.com. Send us something nice, main, or in between. It's all juicy, just the same. And everything I just said about our Twitter account with the podcast, you can go ahead and do that with uh, our email. Sound good, Nick? Sounds good to me. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, you can follow us at The Real Rant, all one word, where we post behind-the-scenes photos of what's going on in our lives when we're in front of a microphone and when we're not. And if you're feeling real jazzy, you can go ahead and give us a five-star review on whatever listening platform you're listening to us on right now. And if you're feeling even jazzier than that, go ahead and subscribe because we'd love to have you back. And last but certainly not least, you can go ahead and visit our website at therealrant.com where you can find all the links that I've just mentioned up in the top left-hand corner of our cover page. Next time on The Real Rant, we will be discussing the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. So stay tuned for that. Hey, Nick, guess what time it is? What time is it, Brendan? It's time for the film of the week. <laughs> the film of the week. <laughs> the film of the week. <laughs> Give me the magic sword. All right. <laughs> that was good that was good i dig it i forgot you guys do this shit that's right <laughs> dude we do it every uh, week yeah great. listen to the show sorry sorry my bad yeah, yeah too busy i need to catch up here you're too yeah. busy hanging i'm still out in on episode forest. seven i think so yeah. <laughs> 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 I need to uh, spend spend it you need, you just need to get catch a good cold and just sit in and just listen to it or you can just day. do the dishes listen to it while you're doing anything oh, just download it and then not drive. a good multitasker all right you take it easy i can, I can attest to that <laughs> yeah Sorry. but i also can say that you could just do it while you do the dishes but i was gonna then say that you don't clean your house so yeah i was gonna say what <laughs> the hell are you talking about <laughs> you're dirty man i haven't even cooked in two months <laughs> no really? that's a lie i mean, just started when last did... week <laughs> so the film of the week this week is as we said at the top of the episode reservoir dogs so this film is actually quite special to me and Zach. So why don't we get into the question that we always ask our guests. Why did they pick this film? So, Zach, why'd you pick this film? Well, in grade 10, I walked into our theater class and I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I'm not very good at talking to girls. And there's about 25 girls and there five guys. so many girls. So many girls. It and was like... two guys and one, no, it was two other guys aside from you. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was definitely looking like he picks his nose for a living. And one was Graham Gerson. And I was like, well, at the uh, time, I was like, I'm not a huge fan of you. <laughs> like, you know, good friends with them now, I think, or yeah, better friends anyhow. Solid and, guy. And, uh, and, the, and I was like, okay, I looked over. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that other guy. We better go talk to him. It's Brandon, of course. Like, hey, want to share a locker? <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, it was a huge, and you could tell like that was such a big deal for the both of us. Like, hey, so we need a friend here. We need a friend. Closest thing yeah. to an arranged marriage that went well. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> like, it was like, hey, do you want to be locker buddies? We just met five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> so we we started like our first project for that semester was making a movie, yeah. and uh, we I had never seen any Tarantino movies. And so, like, really, no, never before that. I didn't I, know that I, until I just right now. I saw them all afterwards, mm. and I'm just like, you know, like a year, a couple years after, no, maybe six months after, I'd see, I saw Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, you just copied all the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I so think I have, remember those conversations uh, where you literally went like over a period of like time. I think because I got you to watch Reservoir Dogs because we basically made a movie like point for point, pretty much like Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah. Um, the three guys like walking down like the, the street that we I did lived we on. did we copied we shot for shot copied the uh the, the opening, opening scene, scene from uh, from with the little green bag entry yeah um that's right where they you know 
looking back on a track with a little green bag, you know? Yeah. And we played the whole song. Um, and we this... even copied Tim Roth's uh, scream after the entrance. We did. Colin Gofford. Shout out to Colin Gofford. He yeah, was he in the movie. He doesn't even listen to the show. No, he doesn't care. Yeah. No. <laughs> that's right. uh, good, good, good yeah. old friend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Lived uh, across the street from us when we were kids. But yeah, Can so... we talk about the name of this movie that was made? Because uh, it's a great name. That's <laughs> right. Brandon, I gotta give full credit. He came up with the name. It's called Majestic Retribution. And I spelt it wrong, too, on the cover of this. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. And you everyone's like, isn't Retribution spelt wrong? And I'm, I was like, ah, I'm telling you what. Like what I said, when you got millions of subs, you're just like you're cruising, you're gonna roll up. I'm gonna roll up with a Majestic Retribution that's spelt wrong <laughs> and a real ranch shirt that's lopsided. It's gonna be like, <laughs> this man's worth millions of dollars. <laughs> Dude, we had a uh, yeah no that film uh was was a bit of a it had a bit of a cult following in our high school like like the people in the theater program knew the film um a lot of people knew the directors of a, like a lot of other films of like projects that have been around like and people everyone knew who this guy arch nemesis in high school john roney oh yeah yeah he, oh, yeah we love him we love yeah. him yeah <laughs> that's right um, he's probably listening right now he's one of your 300 subs no he's not <laughs> yeah uh but basically um everybody knew like the director names of like high school students but like me and zach were known for this one film that we made together in grade 10 and it was partly because of the opening sequence we wanted to use the whole song mm-hmm. and it ended up being three minutes of us walking down the street oh yeah and we made them walk so many times <laughs> it was just like we had we had it we, and then okay so the scene we shot it in we shot it in slow or no we shot it uh, and we played it at real time. I think it was about like two minutes of us walking down the street into the camera, and it was a long shot. Yeah. Um, Keep in mind the movie is only twelve minutes long. Oh yeah, yeah. and three minutes of it is yeah, just us just walking, walking down the street. Yeah. Um, so it's like ten minutes of just complete trash. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty good. It's yeah, prepubescent boys. I loved it. That was great. Yeah. yeah. I got slick back hair, the crappy leather. Dude, jacket. you look like a badass. It's good. Yeah. yeah it's good. But no, we made this movie, and uh, it had a cult following. Um, and uh yeah we pretty much cut for cut try to make uh we tr- majestic retribution we tried to make uh reservoir dogs um and that's a lot of a lot of it has to do with the fact that i went out and saw my first quentin tarantino film back in 2009 um i saw inglorious bastards and i was like this movie's freaking amazing um and i had always heard about reservoir dogs and then um yeah i wanted to make a movie about it um, so when the opportunity arose and then I met Zach and that's how we became best friends was because we, uh, watched this film and then we basically made a copy of the film. Yeah, that's <laughs> and right. And then, uh, ever, and then I remember we also like took it even a step further and we'd go over to your house on weekends and we'd play rock band and we'd name our band Majestic Retribution. Oh yeah. And we that's named right. ourselves in the band after the characters we played in Man, the film. I completely forgot about that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like as you can probably imagine, we were the cool kids at the school. <laughs> it was pretty we were a bunch clear of kids. Just huge lamers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Every time I tell people like like in like today, like at work or something like I'm like, Yeah, you know, I was a theater kid when I grew up and they're like, Oh, you were a loser. Mm-hmm. We understand about well, yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. getting things like uh like this this film is there's a lot of reasons why we picked this film but it's primarily because of the fact that you know we have this connection to it but you picked it i picked picked it it because of this reason though for sure yeah i mean i love the film as well it's awesome i a big part of it for me is that i think tarantino as he's gone along has gotten a lot more like refined with his oh for sure this film Mm -hmm. is his first like directorial debut it shows that this was a first totally it's so raw i love it like some of the shots like a lot of it's handheld like we were talking and a lot of times i was just like when we when when i watched this back again because i hadn't seen it like five six years and 
I remember going, Oh my God. I, Cause I watched it with you before, you know, we started recording and, um, and I was like, I was like, man, this film is like exactly like the films we would have made if we had gone to college and go to film school. Absolutely. Yeah. Like absolutely. shot for shot. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the budget for this film was so low too, that, um, that people even brought their own clothes. And I was like, I remember, I remember so many times having situations where I would text you and be like, look, what are you wearing for the set today? That's right. Cause we used to film a lot of movies together growing up yeah. and I'd just be like, yo, what are we wearing for set today? Yeah. And who's making the blood? Yeah. Who's <laughs> making the blood? That yeah. was a big thing. That's who's huge. making uh, the yeah. blood? Yeah. No. Yeah, that that was, was a. Do you remember that? I Nick? remember that. So yeah. Nick, Nick was also in some movies of ours. I wasn't in Majestic Retribution because I came like a year. I came to the school a year later. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. a year late to it. But like when I did, similar to how Quentin Tarantino has sort of his core group of actors yeah. that he calls on, Brendan had his core group of actors that he acted yep. on, which goes up to even a project that he made last year with me and Corey and allegra were in it for school oh, that was two years ago was that friend. two years ago Dude, it was two years ago yeah. the the charlie chaplin one? Oh no that was a year ago yeah that was a year yeah, ago we made the Ch- charlie yeah. chaplin film no yeah. no i'm not talking about the sequel no, um, no. <laughs> the sequel to majestic retribution majestic retribution we'll get two, into the trailers oh, out yeah. there but you know that's right the film's never coming out no <laughs> <laughs> that's right but yeah like brendan had like this group and when he had an idea he was like okay i think that person would be good for it that person and that yeah. person guys let's yeah. get together was, let's nick always played a douchebag <laughs> was always he knows what brendan thinks of <laughs> <laughs> you're just always... like tall and skinny and the girls like you yeah so if you're still <laughs> listening you probably can probably understand that we have a lot of feelings towards this film and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it kind of spawned a lot of our friendships and yeah. what we like to do on this show is is this is a perfect example and it um, is to kind of like talk about why the movies that we talk about in this show are close to us so that way we can connect with our listeners and we can connect with each other. And I definitely know that going to the editing room, I'm going to have a hard time cutting a lot of this stuff out. So yeah. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Can I say something about this film? Oh yeah, for sure, man. Thank you. This was my first time watching it. Oh, no way. I had never Whoa. seen Reservoir Dogs, so I had seen Majestic Retribution first. Nice. And so even though I know it was wrong, I was like, hey, Quentin Tarantino stole these scenes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though dick. I know it was wrong, but I saw Majestic Retribution first. And so, like, I don't know if I entirely liked this movie, which we'll get into later, but it, after talking about it now, like, it definitely holds something for me all right before we get too far into talking about the film even though we haven't really we've just talked a lot about majestic retribution and why we picked this film um or why zach picked this film great reason but why by the way I have great to... reason why yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great reason why you picked the film i'm commending you yeah the oh, thank you um but before we get too far into talking about the film let's throw it over to tom with the synopsis hey how's it going everyone it's tom rhombus here again as per usual i'm not here to cause a ruckus But I am here to read a synopsis. Alright, here we go. After a botched bank robbery, the assortment of criminals assigned to the job return to a shady warehouse one by one. As the surviving criminals begin to return, it becomes quite clear that the job was doomed from the start. With spirits low and tensions high, this colourful cast of characters will collide in an ending that leaves everyone floored. 
Reservoir Dogs. All right, thanks, Tom. So I kind of want to start off this conversation talking about uh, was the cold open of this film. I appreciate a cold open because it it requires the attentions of the audience. It, it requires immediate engagement. Um, and it's a lot of the reason why I love theater as well. And Quentin Tarantino does a lot of work in in the sense I feel like he he... I don't know what his background is with theater, film, or whatever the hell. I, I know that he definitely like wrote these scripts because uh, he wrote um, Natural Born Killers, True Romance, and Reservoir Dogs, and he sold two of them and made Reservoir Dogs. Um, and uh, but yeah, like I know he's like a basement kind of dweller, kind of kid, and watched a lot of movies when he was a kid. So I don't know what his theater background is, but a lot of his films, especially in the last couple of years, have been very theatrical. Like they're very like using of the singular space. Um, in that sense. And, and he does that kind of in the opening scene with the, with this diner scene. Right. And, and that reminds me a lot of like a lot of musical theaters that projects that we've all done together. Um, but not only that, just any play you go to, you immediately have to draw focus to the screen. It's not like you, you got to sit through all these production ads and then you got to sit through the more again. Do you know what I mean? But this one is like, there's literally no credits, nothing. It's just everyone's in a diner talking about Madonna, uh, touch for the verse. What is it? Was like this? a virgin. Like, like a, a virgin. virgin. Yeah. 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 That was, that was something that I found. If you, when you compare that to like Pulp Fiction, that, that scene where they open up with, um, with Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, where they're just driving, it's just basically yeah. just chatting and making references. It's just cold opens. Cold open. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that, that those references into Pulp Fiction were much more timeless than the Reservoir Dogs one. Some of them I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? And it didn't necessarily like take away from it that much because it's just all you need to know is that they know what they're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think um, that I think that's the point though. Like it's supposed to show some element of like I mean, Quentin like spends a lot of time talking about pop culture and he does he loves doing it because he the guy watches so much television and and listens to so much music and and he's so passionate about what he writes down. He can write a great conversation, but in this film, you can definitely tell that like like we were saying earlier that this is a first film, and you can tell that a lot of these lines are almost being forced out of the the actors. Yeah, definitely. there was a f- one or two. I was like, nah. yeah, and I was like, wow, that was especially in this opening scene because you're just like that guy does not look like he's supposed to say that kind of thing. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And that's not anyone's fault that's just like growing into becoming like quentin is a lot like wes anderson he is a lot and and a lot like stanley kubrick and 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 a lot like um you know martin scorsese when you're in those films you act the way that you are in those films but when you go outside of it and say you make like i don't know you go and make um uh like a movie by a you know just a no name director you're not really you're just acting in the film with the script, I would say. I mean, directors gain more traction with a style of filmmaking as they move up in their career. But, like, where Quentin's at now, it's like you know when you're watching a Quentin Tarantino film, just, like, in the way you know you're watching a Hitchcock film when you don't really actually know you are. Like, that's happened to me before where I was, like, I'm wa- I was watching a Hitchcock film and didn't know I was watching a Hitchcock film, and I'm like, I really like this movie, but I don't know why. And I was like, oh, it's a Hitchcock film, you know? And... And Quentin has that aspect to him more so now, 
Um, and this film is a great representation of how he's building it. And this opening conversation is the perfect example of that, again, is to reiterate that point of is how he's kind of developing himself as a filmmaker and showing everybody what he's kind of going to become, yeah. which is really kind of cool. I would yeah. I would suggest that like at that point when he made that, that, that there was still a legitimate case for him to make that he wanted to be an actor as well. Yeah, you know what I mean? for sure. Because, I mean, you see a diminishing role of him in his own movies as you, as they go along. Right? Oh, yeah, for All sure. The, like, he was that's in... probably his biggest role, his, I'd say. Pulp, no, he was in Pulp Fiction. He played... Uh, yeah. He, he, he went with Juli- when Julius came and... I guess, yeah, he played the, the neighbor. Or Julian. Is it Julian's house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when they take the, the dead body there. Yeah, I suppose that's a pretty big role, too. But mm-hmm. still, definitely a diminishing role as it goes along. Yeah. Um, but I feel like he definitely used the other actors as a crutch. Because he's ta- he's speaking, and you're like, okay. And then the moment they step in, it kind of saves it in a way. Well, I would I would disagree, actually. I almost feel like he's a fourth wall break because it sounds more like his voice when he's talking about the references. Because he opens up the film with the conversation that he's talking about with Madonna, the Madonna conversation. Right. And when he's talking, it's like, this makes sense for him to say it. And then when other people kind of join into the conversation, it's almost like his voice coming out of other people's mouths. Yeah. Do you yeah. Know I mean? say that's correct for everyone except Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Like it all sounds very natural coming from Steve, Steve Buscemi, Buscemi yeah. which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. And I think I think that's quite interesting too because of the fact that um, Steve's character was actually going to be Quentin's character. Like Quentin was going to play yeah. Mr. Pink in the film. However, uh, Steve Buscemi blew him away uh, which in, makes sense in the audition cause... that... Quentin was just like, yeah, you can have the part. Like, you nailed it. Um, and I think that would have been... That's the better choice. Mm, I think it's yeah. a little bit... I think it's... There's something... Um, there's something too much. I don't know how to put it, but I'm not the biggest fan of when a director... Or not just a director. When the writer is in the film. He's yeah. acting in the film. Because then you're just kind of like... It takes It, it takes too much out of the film. Mm-hmm. Because it's like you're the voice of all the people, right? You have to differentiate those voices. But when you're the voice that's written all these characters and then your voice is then put into the film as a character and a character that you wrote, it's it's a bit of a fourth wall break. Even if sometimes – because you'll know. Like sometimes you'll know when um, a screenplay or uh, is written by an actor in the film because – the words will come out more naturally in a conversation by them. Mm-hmm. And then when other people try to feed off of that kind of conversation with other points of view or, you know, subtext that the camera is kind of giving off um, in, in relation to the actor's voice that the actor slash screenplay writer has written, um, you'll kind of be like, well, that's a little bit unnatural for the other actor who's not the screenplay or screenplay slash actor guy kind of to respond that way. Like it's, it's almost unnatural for them to kind of talk like that. I don't know. Sure. I, I, I would go back to what you said about um, them sounding, everyone sounding like it was Tarantino speaking, except for uh, Buscemi. I, I think uh, Harvey Keitel and, uh, and um, what's Eddie, I think they add a little bit more than what just Tarantino, in my opinion. I think that, like, you know, he the, he has, I don't know, I, I see what you're saying, like, it sounds like it's just Tarantino saying it, but I think they add a bit more. I don't think we're trying to remove credit from this scene, like, everybody did do a very good job with yeah. this scene, and yeah. it was very believable, but it was definitely, like, at times when they were talking, 
the way that Tarantino spoke. Yeah. It was like, I, I, it I felt most exa- natural from him. Totally. I think know? the biggest example is Joe for me. Yeah. Joe, oh, yeah. Just, just, uh, like, uh, well, he's an old-timey actor. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, he's definitely, you can tell that, like, time has aged yeah. his sort of way of acting. Yeah. Like, because, like, back in the day, everybody was acting overacting, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you go from silent movies where you constantly have to overact to, you know, films where they have talkies, right? And I'm not saying that, that this guy is that old. I'm just saying that this guy comes from an older generation, right, where this sort of dialogue with so many pop culture references, so many hip, you know, slang and things like that, where this guy obviously doesn't fit in. Um, yeah. So it's pretty obvious that this guy doesn't belong in the situation, um, which adds maybe to a dynamic of his age in the film as opposed to all the other characters maybe at mm-hmm. the table. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know. This opening scene is just so beautiful, but I think, I think the one, I think if it could have been better if Steve Buscemi's character opened up the film talking about Madonna and not Quentin. Yeah. Because the, I mean, I I think the hardest part for me in this is taking away the fact that I know who Quentin is as a writer, as a director. Think about um, it at the time though. Like this was his first Thing. Yeah, and at the time people wouldn't have known that exactly. So it's, thing, it's it does date the movie. I it suppose. does. Yeah. The only thing I would challenge about that though is that I think that if you have Buscemi open up with what say what Quentin said, and then he also has the scene where he's talking about tipping, there's so much focus on that character. You would I mean, expect really, more from him, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, like there's well, the, I, his character be, is I would say almost the most important character. He's one, Mister Pink. Yeah, but they they I I feel like they shared. The screen time pretty well. I mean, Mr. Blue and Tarantino get a bit less, obviously, but like the other one. Yeah, it's Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown. Brown, yeah, yeah. Brown, yeah. He, so, Quentin Tarantino plays Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown and Mr. Yeah, Blue is so close to shit. So, yeah. like, I think if you just focus on Buscemi the whole time with both, I think that's a little bit too much screen time for that. Well, he yeah, plays fair, he plays fair. kind of a Shakespearean character though. He plays kind of the overseer. He plays like. Um, like Feste from Twelfth Night. He's the foil. He's the foil. He's yeah. a foil character. He's not. He's just kind of there to add common sense to a lot of everything that's going on. Like, like in the scene, for instance, where Harvey Keitel is like admitting to the fact that he gave Tim Roth, uh, Mister Orange. Um, Tim Roth is the the actor. If people need that for help. Uh, when Mr. Orange uh, and Mr. White kind of give each other the information about, like, who they are as people, like, their actual names and stuff like that, which they're not supposed to do. That's why they're mm-hmm. given those identities um, to give themselves secret. Um, and he's saying that to Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi. Um, Harvey Keitel kind of, like, gets... It's it's a really beautiful scene where like Harvey Keitel, you can tell he's like a he's an old thug, you know, he's been doing this a long time, you know, but he's screwed up, and you can tell based on the way they shoot him, um, not shoot him like actually with a gun, but like the way they film him, mm-hmm. um, with the camera angle, that he's feeling visibly uncomfortable that you know he screwed up in giving he 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 was vulnerable. Somebody else was vulnerable. He became vulnerable and empathized and gave up information that was too much information. And Steve Buscemi kind of like acts as this common sense character where he's like, well, you really shouldn't have done that. He's like, well, what was I supposed to do? You know? Yeah. Well, again, like you said, like Buscemi's always, he's freaking out a little bit in that first scene, but he's always making rational decisions. Yeah. And like you said, like, except for right at the end. Right at the end. You're right. Yeah. 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 But still, for the most part, he's not 
he's kind of like like he said he's got that line where he's like we're supposed to be like like f-ing professionals like he keeps saying that yeah and he's just like because everyone's getting all emotional and making oh yeah you know, everyone that's how everyone dies in the end is because yeah. everyone gets emotionally involved right yeah. like the the like um like nice guy eddie gets killed you know because he's trying to protect his dad and joe dies because he's trying to kill tim roth because he's pissed off because they they think he set him up yeah and it had nothing to do with actual evidence it was because of a gut feeling which is again emotional response yeah um harvey Keitel is trying to protect tim roth aka mr orange yeah uh from joe and nice guy eddie so he shoots them both like it's just yeah it's kind of ridiculous and i it, almost get like a father-son vibe from uh harvey Keitel and tim roth for sure movie, yeah a little bit, you know? yeah for sure and i think you get that a lot of the, a lot of that f- because of that opening scene which yeah. by the way i was going to mention is like that that scene where he harvey Keitel is kind of like bringing him into the into that kind of like funeral home space it's like a or is it like a cremation oh place? like the where they all meet up yeah yeah no it's a it's a morgue yeah it's, it's a mortuary kind of, it's kind of funny yeah that, that's a it's morgue hilarious. because so many of all and, of uh, them the die apartment, in there the apartment yeah uh that tim roth's character is yeah. in is upstairs from the mortuary oh really yeah no way yeah i read that in a little trivia fact oh, okay so. very interesting okay um so yeah, anyways, the when, you know, Harvey Keitel is bringing in Tim Roth into, you know, after he's been shot into the the mortuary, um he's pulling him in and that scene reminds me so much of the death scene of the medic in Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Yeah. Um and how like kind of agonizing it like you'd think cuz this fo- this movie is it's it's a dark dark comedy to yeah. some degree. Like Definitely. it is a it is a uh what is it called when the film is like a foil? Like the whole film is, it's, there's a Shakespearean word for it. I can't think of it right now, but it's where everything kind of falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it, and it has a, everything to do with the fact that people just make stupid, stupid in the moment decisions. Totally. That's the thing. Yeah. Like this, I like that we're referencing how much this film is like a play because one, I can see it being turned into a play. Well, I don't think it would be one, difficult. Yeah. One room pretty exactly. much. Exactly. And also, like it does borrow so many like Renaissance theater tropes. It does like yeah. that. That yeah, this it's perfect for that. I mm-hmm. really like that uh, comparison to the Saving Private Ryan because in that in that scene, you know, he's like he, when he asks for the morphine because he's just so tired of being at the doing the horror of war and all that stuff and, and being s- in pain, being in pain and all this. And the same thing be- before Tim Roth gets shot, he sees Harvey Keitel take out the cops, and he's just like kind of rattled you can tell he's just like i don't want to do this anymore i'm done you can, yeah you can kind of see on his face well he's a young kid yeah yeah that's he's right kid. and then and then same thing when the, when the lady shoots him in the car it, it's very clear when he shoots her it's a lot of like oh no i'm got, one, one i've gotten shot and two i'm i'm shooting an innocent woman you yeah. know what i mean what am i doing kind i've of gone thing. too far exactly there's exactly. all kinds of guilt on his face i think and yeah so i thought that was yeah no very very similar but i think when they brought him in i think it was just that was the one point in the film where I was like, I remember this because we were laughing. You and I were laughing quite a bit in the beginning of the film. Yeah. There are, like, it, it's funny. Yeah, it it's is. It's a funny opening, the cold open and all that jazz. When you get to that scene, though, when they when Harvey like brings him in to the, the mortuary, it's just hard to watch. Yeah. Like, it's just it's really intense. Like Tim Roth deserved an Oscar for that, like five minute performance. Yeah, it's great. Like it was it was really good. Like he I believe that he was dying. Yeah. Like, yeah. He was like, like, there's a lot of like, um, 
there's a lot of like you can tell that these guys are very racist and very like uh just terrible human people. They, they, they make say, that they say the end, clear. They say yeah. the N-word like quite a few times. And they also, just the whole Mr. Pink conversation when he's handing out the names. Right? Yeah. The part that really kind of got me in this scene was just the the aspect of the male bonding uh, in the whole like hold me. He, you know, Tim Roth says, hey, Larry, can you hold me? Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I can hold you. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is like actually like getting pretty serious here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because these guys are like tough, hardened criminals. Like, yeah. They're not going to like ask that kind of question seriously. Because if you've watched this film for the first time, you don't know that Mr. Orange is a cop up until like the ending of the film. Yeah. Can so, confirm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. did like, that surprise you? Not really. Okay. Um, I kind of saw that one coming, but there were a lot of sort of curveballs that the movie threw me like to the whole male bonding thing. Yeah. We're thrown into the cold open. They're all sitting around talking about like a virgin. I thought all of these guys had been friends for years yeah. and had known yeah. each other for years. But you don't know that they're not until like the know. last two seconds of the scene. Yeah. Well, yeah, that. And even just like uh, right after there's the cold open and then there's the whole title sequence and all of that. And then the next scene we see is uh, Mr. White carrying Mr. Orange in to the mortuary. Yeah. Or no, yeah. driving him in the, in the, in the car, car. Right. Yeah. And they're like, like he's holding his hand. He's holding his hand. He's screaming for him. He's mm-hmm. saying, "No, you're not going to die." And say he's the singing words. it almost. Yeah. yeah, he's like, "Say the words." Like, "Say the words." Yeah. So yeah. tell me you're not going to die. And you're just like, "Why is he talking to him like so this?" So you yeah. don't really learn that they don't know each other until we go to one of the flashbacks. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I and think so... that that too. That thing, like you said, where he's singing. I think that's a lot for him as well. Right. Oh, like, definitely. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. totally his coping mechanism. Well, that's also just Harvey Keitel being a good actor. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, right. that's not downplaying the fact that there is a lot of part-time acting in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people that um, we use this term in the house, uh, and occasionally when we're talking about actors that are kind of just half-assing it a little bit, Mister um, Blonde. But a little bit. I didn't like Mister Blonde. Well, we'll nobody into, likes we'll Mister no, Blonde, no, but yeah. as an actor, but we'll get into it. Yeah, later. but um, part-time is basically this reference that we make to. Uh, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So basically, Shia LaBeouf asks... uh, You're a teacher? Yeah. (laughs) Part-time? (laughs) Part-time. It's a a red-letter media joke. Why did they use that take? (laughs) Um, But anyways, there's a lot of, like, kind of, you know, half-ass acting a little bit. And Nick, you feel like Michael Madsen is not your cup of tea in this film a little bit? No, because I feel like even just looking at the whole torture scene where he cuts off the cop's ear and stuff, I think that scene would have been so much better if he was just a little charismatic. He's a pacifist in real life. Is he? Yeah, he's actually like... That That scene, I, did, I looked some stuff up and I found out that he like had a hard time filming that scene. Hmm. I mean, fair enough, but at the same time, you're an actor. Yeah, make but right. Like, here's the thing with like Michael. Sa- but that's like saying a vegetarian playing like a, a butcher. Yeah, and it, they do a bad job, and it's like, no, no, oh, it's because they're a vegetarian. Oh, that's like a good point. you're right. You're an actor. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is your job. I do think. Your job. I think. Um, I think my thing for Michael Madsen is that I find I think I would call it just forgivable because Michael Madsen is a. He's a very specific character actor. Fair enough. Yeah. Everything that he is in is essentially just 
like roughly a little bit different than the character that he played in this movie. Like this film, it's more believable that he was putting on his acting chops to show you that he was a psychopath Mm -hmm. as opposed to like other films where he's like, has that sort of like cool guy demeanor that he has in like say kill bill. It's pretty much the same thing where he plays the rancher slash bad guy in the hateful eight movie. Mm -hmm. Um, like he, he plays a lot of similar characters and a lot of like, um, and a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino films, but they, but they're also not that similar. That's super because fair. it's all in this. Like I feel like a lot of Michael Madsen's characters that he plays, a lot of them live in the subtext. Well, I feel like where I'm coming from with this is since this is my first time watching it, I have yeah. a lot of other experience to things. Whereas, like I'll see torture scenes from, you know, even just scenes of Jim Moriarty in the Sherlock show. Right. Like they work because he's so charismatic and he's sort of bubbly about it. And Mr. Blonde, like, what's the actor's name? Michael, Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. He's very cool. And I think he's a very cool guy, but I think that scene just sort of fell I flat think th- when I it think could have been the, a great scene. I think that's the reason why I thought it was good, though. It was because he played it so cool. It's because but he was. Did he play it cool? It just seemed like he was disinterested the whole time. No, he was normalizing the fact he was. He was showing. Okay, so that's the thing I really like about this film is the fact that they don't really, you don't really know their names other than mm-hmm. what they give you, and that kind of disassociates because whenever you give somebody a name, you associate things with that name, right? But when you give them like fake names and you know as an audience that they're fake names, you apply singular little attributes that you understand through dialogue. Now, when we look at, for instance, I mean, you could do a character study on Mr. Pink as a perfect example, For sure. but like for Mr. Blonde, you have to listen for other people about what they think of him to really figure him out. Mm-hmm. I full on believe that he's a psychopath. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. And I full on believe that because of the fact that everyone keeps telling everyone that he's a psychopath he never admits to it because psychopaths don't admit to the fact that they're psychopaths because they don't know they they don't really understand i mean they do but you know they don't think of themselves it's different they don't think of themselves as psychopaths um but he is a psychopath and i think his his level of dealing with the cop and the torture scene um and i get it's kind of difficult now because i know kind of the background behind the scene However, I think it works because I think that um, when you add to the level of the fact that everyone thinks he's a psychopath, him acting in that scene, just his bravado, his actions, the way he dances to what he's doing, um, the music they're playing, all these different things, just kind of adds with the vibe of the fact that this is – him torturing a cop and cutting his ear off is about as – Normal is eating breakfast in the morning for him. Yeah. Like, he enjoys this level of torture. Like, he said it in the beginning of the film. He's like, oh, no, no, no. I don't really care what the hell you want to tell me. Like, yeah. I'm I've not like everybody else. I've heard it all before. That's I just right. want to see you bleed. Like, he was just like, I just want to have fun. Yeah. yeah. And it was very factual. I like, thought, he's just like, I'm going to. So yeah. many times and was so used to it. That's, exactly. That's what I got out of it. Like, I got the feeling like he hates cops. Yeah. Right. And I think he hates everyone. And, and you get that from the fact that when they tell, when he straight up says that he shoots people cold blood, like in the, the diamond shop. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, again, it's just like, it's just fun for him. Right. He's just, exactly. he's, just he's just enjoying himself. Like that would be a, his recreational activity for yeah. him. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's, I wonder what he went to jail for. And they said what it was. Wasn't it? 
What yeah. was it? It was, it was like it? armed robbery or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because yeah, you mentioned it. I also kind of wanted to talk a little bit about um, the. There are some flaws with this film, um, and it is a first film, so it is kind of understandable. The budget's really low, um, but there are some things that could have been fixed. Um, like, for instance, the aspect of the reasoning behind why certain characters needed to leave, like the justifications behind why characters needed to leave. Just before the torture Bef- is what you're talking before, about. Yeah, the, yeah, there's two scenes. There's the... There's and we'll get to this afterwards because it's it's a little bit more in depth. But the first one I want to mention is just a little bit shorter. But the scene where you know nice guy Eddie has to talk forever about why they need to leave, and he has to keep on reiterating why you know he needs two people to come with him to go get the cars moved. That yeah. makes sense. Okay, you can do that, but don't tell me so many times because because if you do that, you're just a, you're you're pointing out to the fact that you're gonna leave the audience behind in this room with mr blonde yeah because you shoved in your face a little too much it's a little bit like it's a little bit too on the nose like oh we need we're going to a new scene yeah you know what i mean um and the other scene that does that really hardcore is the tip scene um and it's this it's the part of the it's the part right at the beginning of the film um where you know and it kind of involves this aspect of uh over acting or not acting but uh where you know where the voice of the writer is coming from because it sounds like everybody. Like, everybody at that table kind of sounds like the voice of the writer. Um, And (coughs) nice guy Eddie says, all right, everybody, cough up the green. And it's like, we've already talked about this. Yeah. Like, the fact... You just think he's reiterating what was already said. It's It's the part where nice guy Eddie says, all right, everybody, cough up the green. And it's like the way he says that kind of like out of nowhere, you know that there's going to be another aspect to this scene that we're going to get out of this part of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where it's like setting up the next. That's right. Because the next layer. Yeah. Say that tipping scene doesn't exist. I feel like they cut that just as they're reaching for their wallets kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like in a, in a normal film. Yeah. In a basic film. Mm -hmm. If, a character were to say that the scene would end there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about a little while that you didn't tip for years because of that scene? <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, oh, I didn't t- I didn't tip for years because of that scene. Brent, Brent just, I believe in I'm it like, fully. See, I believe in that argument. That is a true argument. I think like, go for dinner or something. I'm just like he didn't didn't tip at all. I'm like, why aren't you tipping? We got like tip the waitress. It's like, no, no, reservoir dogs. <laughs> I believe it, man. When I was, I mean, I still, I tip now, but my excuse for tipping little is because I'm a student and it's like, I can't afford it just like you can't afford rent as a waiter. Tipping is just such a weird concept. And I'm, it's really funny that this is a film that top, like covers that, like Mm -hmm. a film about diamond heist people cover a conversation about tipping. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And it is funny because like the central conversation of this film kind of revolves around money. Like income, how people kind of survive um, through kind of like rough times because everyone in this film comes from a place where they're like kind of like involved with crime or there's a lot of mention to like everyday people like um, like, for instance, when they talk about um, the women in the jewelry shop or the, the diamond store, you know, Harvey Keitel. You know, he said, oh, how is that? How old do you think that girl was? was? She was like 20, 21. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
and and you're talking about in that sense in that sense you're you're talking about somebody's like life obviously and their their age and stuff like that and not and them not live their full life but you're also kind of talking about how much they've lived that life and kind of like they just went to work not expecting yeah. this to happen mm-hmm. yeah that's right well they they talk a lot about how they they really care like you said they really care about you know worried about people that are just regular people that are going to walk in that store but then cops are like you know subhuman you know, they really just hate cops. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's definitely that attitude. Well, there's also an element of, like, extreme racism in this film, too. Yeah. Which kind of adds to, I mean, oh, Quentin, yeah. Quentin for some reason, has a weird fascination with the N-word. He oh, does, yeah. Every movie. Yeah. yeah. Jang- Django this... was buck wild. Okay, but that movie, actually, I know, you should be I know. using it. This one, like, at one point, like, when Harvey Keitel and, like, Michael Madsen's are kind of at each other's throats. And uh, he and uses this obscure reference about how like, it's just like, what are you guys a couple of like N words? And it's just like, what? Why was that need? Like, why do you need to say that? Like, see, here's the so thing silly. is, is I think we had a, we paused the film at this part and you were like, I was like, I remember us, the whole everybody in the room just going, whoa, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like that's a little bit of a, because I know, like, again, we know who the director is. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of like, why would you use that as a reference? And the only thing that I can kind of come up with is that these guys are all just real racist. Yeah. Like, I think I think that it's probably the time period but it's also not because it's based in the 90s i was gonna like, say it's not like 18s like like hundreds or anything the like film that. definitely the 30s the yeah 1930s yeah, right? yeah like the exactly. film the film could get by if it was like from the 60s but it's filmed in the 90s like yeah. it's from the 90s and uh because you know tim roth says in the film mr orange he says like oh guys back in 86 way back in 86 right he's just saying yeah so that reference is kind of like he's dating the film a little bit yeah. and the film within the film uh, or the the film time period, yeah. Uh, and when he says like the N word, the only reason why I can justify that that first N word is like that's Quentin. That's the aspect of how we really only associate what we hear about everyone in the film through other people's voices or interactions that they have with other characters that we know nothing about as well. Yeah. So we place little puzzle pieces around these characters and try our best to kind of put it all together to kind of figure out who they are. So, for instance, I can assume that they're all racist. Yeah. Well, yeah, not even just with black people, but like in the whole tipping conversation, uh, one of the characters goes like, oh, I've seen a Jew that tips or that uh, doesn't hold his money as close as you or yeah, something like yeah, that, it's right? Like he's, he, yeah, I, I know a Jew that wouldn't have the balls to say that. Or yeah. Like yeah. That. yeah, it's just like, okay. Or like, or like for instance, uh, like, yeah, or, or, or for instance, the, the reference where Joe basically, when they're giving the names out for the colors, he calls him Mr. Pink, mm-hmm. and he calls him, you know, the derogatory term for a gay person yeah the f word yeah um or or when he said well you could have been it's better than being mr yellow which i would only imply that that's an implication to someone who is uh asian yeah well especially since there's a mr blonde yeah right and there's also a reference yeah there's a mr blonde and not a mr yellow like why would you call him mr blonde that's hilarious i never even picked that up yeah i I thought it was like mr yellow was like they didn't want to be because he already mentions mr shit and yeah. it was just like, I don't want to, I thought no, it was Mr. Just... Shit was after. Well, yeah, I know. Wasn't but, he? Yeah. But, but like, but like they mentioned that and I was like, oh, that's what the Mr. Yellow means. Yeah. And, and they don't I, use the term Mr. Black either. I just Cause he was, was like, why can't I just be called Mr. Black? And he's like, well, you don't want to be called Mr. Black. 
Oh, it's because everyone would fight over and they didn't know each other. They no one would back down, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Everyone would fight each yeah. other, and that's almost that's almost like a. I mean, you could really go as far, but I don't think Quentin Tarantino was making a political statement here. But you could go as far as so far to make an argument about the fact that that is Quentin kind of putting in a reference to, um, you know, race relations or whatever yeah. with the term like, oh, everyone would fight over the term black mm-hmm. or whatever the fact. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and I and I, I that's not what he's doing at all. I no. think I think that's just him writing his script. Well, and that's and that's the hard thing I have about this film is the fact that it is his first film and it's hard for me to justify his first film using so many derogatory terms. Mm-hmm. And it's like I don't know, like I think in the Hollywood community, I think uh people respect Quentin Tarantino, but there are a lot of directors and a lot of people in the game that do not like him for these reasons. Like Spike Lee refuses to watch Django Unchained because apparently it's a, uh, he, it's, uh, he said it was a, um, disrespectful to his ancestors to watch that film because they see the N word so many times. Yeah. All the power to you, Spike Lee, you be yourself, you do your thing. For sure. Um, but would you, I would be more disrespected if he didn't use the words, in my opinion. Yeah. Like it depends where you want to see it. That's the argument though. That's the argument that needs to be made here. It's like, Hey, we're covering up that they didn't use that word. It's like, well, they did. They used, they exactly. But this is the argument we're trying to get at is, is the fact that I think what people like about Quentin Tarantino in his films Mm -hmm. is the fact that he's real. Yeah. Like he's writing, the way people, quotation marks, I forgot we're not being filmed, but quotation marks, people would talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense for this crowd of people to be complete pieces of shit. Yeah. Like, for instance, um, up until the point where they get, where Harvey Keitel, um, so Mr. Blonde, uh, Mr. Pink, and Mr. White, walk to the back of Mr. Blonde's truck and finds the cop in the car, mm-hmm. you, in the room of the uh, mortuary, you know that their ideals are completely all different. They're all over the map, right? They're, yeah. they're you know, one guy is emotional. Mr. White is a pretty emotional guy. He's probably got some sort of fatherly aspect about him. Mr. Pink is a weasel. He's a bit of a shithead, but he's smart. Like, he knows how to get by. Mr. Blonde's a psychopath, right? Yeah. And he's a piece of shit. Right, he's, and he's I like, scum. I like how when they do pull the police officer out of the trunk, there are little hints to all of that. Yeah, because like Mister White is just sort of like beaten on him. Yeah, whereas Mister Pink punches him and then hurts his hand. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. there, I like how there are little hints to their character, even just in those. But even, moments. but the, yeah. but the thing that I was thinking about was the fact that like when they go to the trunk and they all see the cop in the back of the car, they're not like. Oh, this is crazy. We shouldn't do this. They're all like, yeah. They're almost like happy. You know, they're almost. like stoked. They're like vultures ho- hovering yeah. over a dead animal. Like they're like excited that they exactly. get to do something like and mess up a cop. Well, it eases their panic, right? Because they think this could be a source of information to find out what happened, right? That's true. That's you true. Know? Yeah. Like the whole reason for them being all like pissy with each other is because they don't know what happened and they need. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, now we have a way of finding out. You know, this is going to be a tool for us. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there is an aspect that I think that they 
weren't yeah. really considering was the fact they're going to beat the shit out of a cop. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And like they no... have no, they have no problem with that. But when it comes to like holding another criminal as he's totally. dying, they're they're like whatever about it. Yeah, yeah. There is kind of like a Robin Hood kind of thing going on where it's like, hey, yeah, we'll we'll kill anyone from the establishment. But if it's like just a regular person going to work, it's like, oh, we really care about them, and we're yeah. oh, oh, you know, they'll get visibly ups, up, well, not visibly, but you know, they'll get upset about that. Mm-hmm. The one thing I like to point out, and I think he does, Tarantino does this in a lot of his movies, is there's always a. Uh, crazy things going on and there's always characters that are so used to it that they act with normalcy and that's what makes it a good scene you know like you said like when like when in, like in Pulp Fiction when they're just chatting before they go to like bust the bus going to the before um Sam Jackson and Vic and uh Vincent go into like bust up those people that had like messed with uh Marcellus or whatever yeah they're just having a normal conversation talking about that stuff and that is in this movie as well right they're so used to it you know, so, same so thing. violence and like, you know, and, and everything is kind of like perpetuated to a point. Well, exactly. It's and it's constantly, you're constantly reminded yeah. that these guys are so used to it. Like so many scenes, a scene where Joe says, he's like, you, I usually get, I'm usually annoyed at this time. Cause it's like, he's like, he's like, I just gotta tell you, I'm always like this before a heist kind of thing, you know? And same thing when they're telling, when uh, Harvey Keitel's character is telling Tim Ross characters, like what to do with crowd control. It's like, that's all you got to do. You just got to, like, like smash them in the face with the, like, with Cut the gun. his pinky off. Cut off his pinky off. He's yeah. like, yeah, I'll do the thumb next. He's like, all right, let's get some food. Yeah. You know, like, it's just totally, that is just. I want a taco. Yeah, I want a taco. Yeah. <laughs> but Good yeah. choice. But it, it is totally, like, that is a part of what he's about, right? It's not anything out, out in left field for any of them. And right? That's why this film, I think, works so well, is the fact that, like, you, you, you believe you believe the the personas of the characters and what they're doing they believe in like this is like i said like this sort of actions these sort of decisions they make is about as normal as getting up and eating breakfast in the morning yeah. and i think that's why mm-hmm. this opening scene of this film is so important is because it shows that they are just normal people yeah. that do bad shit um and get into trouble so. that's right yeah, no, they're 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 completely flawed, you know, like with like you said with the racism and all that stuff. But again, they're just there's this is something that's just old bag. It's constantly yeah. reinforced the whole movie. They've done this again and again and again. Which is why Mr. Orange's reactions throughout the movie are really important. Yeah. Because they're just little little hints of him um losing his character as in the the cop losing his character, not the actor losing his character. Yeah. But the cop losing the character of Mr. Orange and That's just right. being like holy because he's holy the only shit, one who's not on. used to it, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The so, only one. Um we've talked about how they're racist and we've talked about how they hate cops. So what do you think about the cop that's helping out Mr. Orange? The one that's tied in the, the- chair? Uh, no, Marvin no, Nash? oh, no, oh, uh, the, not Marvin Nash, yeah, yeah, the, the one in the flashbacks. That's right. That oh, was because he's in the story. black. He's black, yeah. and um, I would say maybe that's just a coincidence. But I also read in the trivia that Samuel L. Jackson auditioned to play that role as well, and he so didn't get it. Well, I don't know if he didn't get it, but I think something else happened, and okay. I didn't look too far into it. Okay. Yeah. But like, it's clear that it was intentional that that cop was going to be black. Mm. So, what do you guys think about that? Um, you mean like in a sense, like for the undertones of the racism or yeah, what? Yeah. Um, like, do you think they were just combining everything they, these characters hate into one character? I think it's an interesting parallel mm-hmm. to the rest of the film about how racist they are. I think it definitely adds to the fact that Tim Roth isn't a piece of shit. Um, 
or Mr. Orange isn't a piece of shit. He's just a guy, you know, he's doing his job. He's trying mm-hmm. to get in with this crowd of people. Um, who did you interpret that, that, who that, that guy was? Cause I, right I, off the bat. Yeah. Cause I like, I, for me it was, he was a former criminal that had gone, gone straight. I got that when I, I, I watched the cop. When I first watched yeah. it, I just thought he was another undercover cop or yeah. he was someone close to him. But right. it's hard to read the situation because it's never implicitly said, which is interesting about this film. is like the film spends so much time telling you how things are meant to work. But certain things like trying to figure out who a character is in a scene and mm-hmm. you're never told who it is. You're just made to assume. Isn't something that happens in a Quentin Tarantino film? Mm-hmm. You don't really – you assume relationships based on the conversations that they have because that's how Quentin Tarantino writes his scripts where you assume a good relationship based on the banter, yeah. right? But for instance – I mean sometimes. Well, that's not really a good – that's not a really good point but because a lot of the times – regular strangers will go on conversations about why you shouldn't have you know pickles on a burger you know what i mean but you know in this case with this character it's it's not something you see in quentin tarantino films where you'll see a character and he'll just show up and there's no like oh i know this guy for a b and c yeah you know what i mean yeah he literally just tim roth walks into a diner and sits down at the booth and they just start talking and you're just like but what about the script? They do. They do like. What do you shake, mean? What about the script? Sorry. The script. The the other guy gives uh, Tim Roth a script yeah. about like, oh, this is what you do. The funny, make anecdote. it believable. The little funny drug anecdote. I think that definitely shows that he's an undercover cop. Right. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. no. No. That's that's true. But what I'm saying is, is the fact that I think, I think the interesting fact about this this scene is that. Quentin isn't doing what he usually does. We are meant to extrapolate from incomplete data. Data. Exactly. Data, data, data whatever. Yeah. I, Sorry. I thought, yeah, I for me, I thought it was like, again, like almost like a, a ex-criminal consultant in my mm-hmm. mind. The undercover cop, now that you mention it, does make make sense for sure. But um, he's got all this. It, it sounds like when I when he gives him the script of here's a funny anecdote, it sounded like he had already used that before. In some sort of scenario. Well, a lot of undercover cops will just use their same the same identity just in different crowds. Right. Like mm-hmm. I've done, um, believe it or not, I spent a lot of time doing research on this kind of shit. Uh, but yeah, they'll like they'll use like similar names, you know, to the ones to the new identities that they'll use just in different crimes, mm-hmm. right. like blue collar crimes versus like you know criminal you know organization crimes, right or. You know, just in, in just in infiltrate in the infiltration process. So it, it, I wouldn't put it past him to just give him another story that they've heard before. Yeah, like it's not like it's easier, I think, because I think that character shows. I don't know, like the reason why I just immediately assumed that the guy was undercover, like the, the black guy was undercover with Tim Roth was the fact that like most undercover cop cops, when they work together and they're undercover, there's very few people in the departments that actually know that the person's undercover. Yeah. yeah. It's like one, it's like, it can be like one to like four people. Yeah. Like there's barely any people. And then a lot has to do with the fact that they really have to basically create a new identity. Yeah. Like, have you seen, that's why I love Departed so much is the be- the beginning of the movie just starts out with basically creating Leonardo DiCaprio's other identity to the point where when you get to the end of the film, you actually fully believe that he is an actual criminal. Yeah. Like he's, he's not, he's not an informant. He's an actual cop 
but they kind of like make him out to be a bit of an informant in the film. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So let's talk camera and how it all works within the film. There's a lot of different variation shots in this film. And it reminded me a little bit of like Spike Lee films. Um, Spike Lee kind of, I'm not a huge, I like Spike Lee as a writer. I'm not a fan of him as like a director. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he, he plays a lot with style in his film, like almost like he's experimenting. Like when I, I just saw Black Klansman and he kind of does that with Black Klansman. We're not really a hundred percent sure what he's wanting to do with the camera. Um, and this film kind of does that too. Like it's not really sure what it wants to do. Um, there are a lot of like motion shots and close up shots that I think work really well. And I think that the tone of the film fits better with the, with the, with, um, a camera, a shaky cam, because it adds to the intensity of the film, people moving around, people getting nervous. It makes sense. Um, but however, there's a lot of like stationary low shots, like the one where they're in the bathroom with Harvey Keitel and uh, Steve Buscemi, and they're mm. talking about what they should do. Oh, at the very, yeah, at the very uh, beginning of the scene. film. Yeah, beginning yeah. of the film. Yeah. They're at the beginning of the film, and they're deciding what the fuck they should do. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, all right, why is this shot? What's going on here? Yeah. But then there's other shots, though, where you get that are um, pretty iconic. So the one uh, where Harvey is standing across the room from Steve Buscemi and uh, Steve Buscemi is questioning him as to why, you know, he gave him his name and all this stuff. And you're just like, and that's the one I kind of talked about earlier where he's kind of like standing there awkwardly and he's like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, I've already done it. What are we going to do? Right. Yeah. Um, but my favorite shot, I think in this whole film, um, aside from the Mexican standoff, because that's pretty great is the, uh, the shot where, uh, because a lot of this plays with perspective, right? This film, you know, at occasion relies upon you to kind of interpret the perspective of what the camera is meant to focus on. So a lot of the shaky camera work that's going on is in direct correlation with the dialogue that's going on with the film. So, like, in the intense scenes, the camera is shaking, right? And there's that really iconic shot where Steve Buscemi ends up on the floor because he gets punched in the face by Harvey Keitel. And they point the gun at each other and there's two close-ups and then there's one like wide shot of them both standing there um, kind of yelling at each other. And then the camera slowly zooms out and the camera spent, I, the camera spends a lot of time like zooming in to kind of like emphasize like thought and things like that. But this is the one shot where it zooms out and you're just kind of like, why is the camera zooming out? But you're not really thinking about it a whole lot. And then you're just like, hold on a second. Somebody's watching them. And the perspective, like, switches on you. And you're just like, what's going on? Like, oh, and then you find out it's Mr. Blonde. He's being creepy. He's doing, he's watching them get into a fight. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. What did you guys think of that shot? Oh, it was great. Just, like, the zoom. And then you just see the drink. And it's just the perfect introduction to the character. Like, yeah. he's just sitting, like, he, he Is that the first there. time we see Mr. Blonde? Uh, well, besides the, the first, the cold open. Oh, that's right. Is. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it's a great introduction just because, again, it's, it's the same reason why he's um, why he tortures the cop to to a lesser extent. Yeah. He's just watching it like he's watching a movie, yeah. right? That's the impression I got. Like he's just drinking his drink, just hanging out, and just watching these two guys kind of lose their lose their minds. 
And like, that's just a funny thing that he's doing, right? That's just a part. I think that just adds a little bit more to how psychopathic he is. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an air of like narcissism with that too, right? Because he has information that they don't have. Yeah. And he's kind of acting like a dick because of it. Yeah. Uh, And uh, Mr. White just keeps yelling at him. That's right. That's right? right. But then he's like, oh, I got this cup in my trunk. Come check it out. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I like how that makes it all good, too. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, no, for sure. It's all good. I got a cop in the trunk. Relax. We're good. <laughs> Let's go uh, yeah. talk to him. Yeah. the uh, I really like the... Um, we're just talking about different scenes that added intensity to I really like what they did with the hand dryer in the washroom when there was the German Shepherd and the mm. four cops. Yeah. Because it's just like that, that noise. It's just like this uh constant just like started a so it sounds like it's it doesn't sound like a air dryer it sounds like an airplane yeah that's right that's and right i kept on thinking that they were going to cut to another scene where it was like somebody getting off an airplane yeah no absolutely because it, it was so loud it, it, but then again it just adds like uh attention to the scene right like yeah. that's i like i really like that um there's that one scene though that you were mentioning to off podcast about um, the one with Steve Buscemi where he's talking about he's talking about what he did after the heist. Oh, right. He's running away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, he's running away from the cops. The cops are chasing. He's pushing people out of the way. And then there's that awesome scene where he hijacks the car, pulls the woman out of the window. And then there's like a, a real you know, like, like... It's like over his shoulder and then halfway through he's shooting at the cops and then and halfway he, it turns on and turns and cuts to him and it's like a really fast zoom yeah and you're just like oh my god this guy's a badass but he's also a piece of shit yeah that's right <laughs> like yeah. not because he's a piece of shit because he's like an asshole he just plays the weasel character so much he plays yeah. the he plays the fool so much yeah that's right so yeah. i don't know what about- he kind of seems like he's like almost bumbling too he's like dropping the briefcase and kind of losing it like he seems like he's right about to just like, oh yeah they were showing that because yeah he was tripping all over the place he yeah. dropped the briefcase even pulling the woman out of the window yeah like, it did not go well no that no, was not smooth very seems like a dregs of society character mm-hmm. i think that is like shown really well in that scene they didn't have a budget really for this film enough to have uh because i read this in the, in the trivia um, they didn't have a budget apparently well enough to get like police to kind of like block off the street for this shot. So they had to within the 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 red light green light actual changing in an actual street light. They had to do this wow. scene. So that part where he has to pull the woman out of the window, he has to pull her out of that window within the changing of the light. Wow, that's so, crazy. Yeah, because they had no actual official. Um, Man, like so they kind of get one shot at it, and then they have to like. Well, you can keep doing it in between one shot and whatever, but you like that shot to work with it. Yeah, that one shot was from really far away. Yeah, I assume that most of those people that were standing around are weren't. Oh, there were extras. There were extras. Yeah, Yeah, but the the shot I think in the street is what I was talking about. Right, actually, was actually real. Um, Nick, is there any favorite shots that you like? Um. I really liked, and I think this is the one that's in most Quentin Tarantino movies, the trunk shot. When oh, yeah. When they open yeah. up the trunk and it's from the trunk. And you never a, see what's in it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's that's in a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies. It's in the briefcase scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the briefcase scene, but you never actually find out what's in the briefcase, but you you basically come to understand it's gold. But with yeah, with the with the cop and being in the trunk, and then that's yeah, it's used in Pulp Fiction again, yeah. and a couple of others, aren't there? Well, there has yeah, to be. There has to be. But it's also just a shot that is used so often, and I just have a weird affinity for it. I just like the idea of not like 
I like the idea of the director holding back and letting the imagination grow before mm-hmm. you find out what it is. Do you know what I mean? Because they're standing there in front of the trunk for like a couple minutes, and we or see not their a couple reaction. minutes, about a minute. Yeah, the, all like we see their reactions, and it's all the see. same. And that's yeah. the important thing that's a, that that I was trying to point out earlier is the fact that it's all they're all the reaction is all the same, and these guys have been disagreeing this whole time, and you're just mm-hmm. kind of like. How in the hell can all these guys agree on one thing when we've just seen them bitching off at each other for 20 minutes? Yeah. There's got to be something in that trunk other than diamonds. Yeah. I, at first, I think that you, you're you meant to think that that's the diamonds that are in the trunk. Okay. But at the same time, uh, Mr. Pink, Mr. Pink said them. that he had the diamonds already. He stashed yeah. them. Yeah. So, or he had a bag. I think there was probably more, but yeah, yeah no, I, I, I really like that shot as well. It's quite yeah. nice. It's quite nice. One more that I really enjoyed was when it was a slow, I think it was just Buscemi and Harvey Keitel discussing sort of who was the rat. And it's just mm-hmm. a slow zoom on Harvey Keitel's face. Yeah. As Buscemi is still talking the scene and it's him sort of think you, you can tell he's thinking about who's the rat. And at the same time, he's thinking like, who can I trust here? Like, uh, if I, should I leave? He's kind of like considering what his next decision be he's very like introspective i think in that shot yeah yeah i think he's really confused and i think i think that is uh that's a good shot that truly shows kind of the making of a great director of quentin tarantino is like this film a lot of the methods that are used in it um are used in his other films Um, i don't recall seeing a lot of handheld shaky cams in a lot of his films that he has today no definitely less I mean, he used he it doesn't quite a bit. Yeah, he doesn't one. need to. Yeah, like yeah. I don't, I don't think there is. Like, I, and I think that's, I think he's found his balance now. He, he definitely has a. His films are actors, actors' films. Like they're like, he can take really great actors and make them into cr- creepy villains. Yeah, like whenever, whenever you think of, uh, you know, an actor that you really like playing in a Quentin Tarantino film, you're like, you're in for a treat because you know that he's going to do something to that, that that actor in the film, and he's going to make them yeah. something unique, right? Definitely. Or yeah, so. yeah, draw something out you'd never seen in that actor before, mm-hmm. or you know, or take the best part of that actor and and you know, show it to the world, kind of. Which thing. I think that's what he does with Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. He takes like the best parts of him and really. Throws it out there. Totally. Same with uh, Christoph Waltz. Yeah. 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 And DiCaprio for one, me. Two oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That was Christoph Waltz won two Oscars for two Quentin Tarantino films. Yeah. 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 That's insane. I did want to kind of go back to that oh, that cold open again. Um, and we don't have to really talk a whole lot about it. But I wanted to ask, because uh, I just thought about it when we were talking about something else, is what would you guys think of this film because Zach was mentioning about kind of like introductions to these characters. You were like, Oh, that was a great, that, that shot of Mr. Blonde with the, with the pop or whatever. Sure. Um, what would you guys feel about this film? If you didn't have that opening, that cold open, and it was just Tim Roth in the back of the Um, car. and And, and no, and no walking scene at the start. No. Well, it wouldn't make much sense if there's just six guys walking. That would seem that scene would seem out of place. Yeah. Okay. So we cut. Sure. Okay. Let's say, for instance, we cut. Um, let's cut that scene. And let's cut the opening scene. Yeah. What I would mean, you think? The part that would. Uh, so that would make that would make. I tell um, you why it wouldn't make any sense because the moment Buscemi busts in, so after he's dragged um, uh, Tim Roth in and he's all bust up, like that would be like, okay, what's going on in this movie? But I think it would really lessen Steve Buscemi's character to not have the tipping scene at the start. 
because then Steve Buscemi comes in and you're already just, if you don't have that first scene, you are introduced to two new characters and you don't know what's happened to them and you're really confused. You're like, what the heck's going on? But that's the whole point of a cold open. I I get that. I get that. But then with with that, I think it's just a harder cold open than the opening one. That's what I think too. I think it would just disorient you more. Like you would just be thrown right into the action. Exactly. Without having any prior knowledge. But that's what you do with Quentin's films. Well, that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like I'm saying it would be a really interesting thing to not have that cold open and just go straight into um, the two of them driving with yeah. Tim Roth bleeding in the back seat. I think it would be really kind of neat that they just went right in there because, you know, as they add new characters, it's like, oh, they know more people. Oh, who are these people? Yeah. And then you'll learn who everybody is. And it will kind of, it would actually kind of have a little bit more satisfaction to finding out the big reveals and things and how they all know each other. I think it would be really cool. I think would be really cool is if they added, so they just do that really disorienting cold open of Tim Roth in the back of the car with Mm -hmm. Harvey Keitel driving. And I think if they moved the actual cold open of this film and put it at the end, after all of the crazy, after everyone dies and they have them all sitting down at the diner, Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be better. Like almost in a way because you're just like you see all these people and all these things that have gone wrong for these guys. But then you see them at some point having some level of civility. Yeah. Is that the proper word? Yeah, but yeah. then it's almost like an in memoriam type deal where it's just like oh, I, I would agree dep- with that. I think it depends how you do it because I was yeah. thinking about that too and then I was also thinking it's like they're like all dead. how it's like... people would come out and be like, oh, that's what heaven is. No. Yeah. I don't think – like I think – Purgatory. I think <laughs> – I'm not a, Brennan's going to hate me for saying this, but I'm not a huge Tarantino fan, but I think he's, I think he's smarter than making it seem like that. Like, I think he's smart enough that he'd find a good way to show that that is a flashback and show these characters as not just bad people, but as people who were all bonding at one point. Yeah. Yeah. But I, for me, that scene gives way more to the characters as you're going along Mm -hmm. rather than at the end, Hey, you just find out they're normal guys. Because that, that, that is what the whole point of that scene is, right? Just like either just regular guys that, you know, do. I guess it is stuff. true. But I'm, but I think I'm just making the argument that, that it works either way. I think so too. I disagree. It would just, for I, th- me. I, I think it like gives you a little bit, of in, just a little bit of insight to what they're about. Well, I'm saying that like, I think the idea of knowing less in this film is better. And like, I'm about to bring into this conversation because I think it's a good way to kind of wrap things up is is the idea of them not showing the actual robbery and talking about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's it's kind of the same thing. You're you're putting pieces together. This whole film is about putting the puzzle together, trying to figure out what the hell actually happened. Yeah. And the only way you were able to actually figure thing out is 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 literally through the subtext. Like you're at at times. Yeah, but you but, need some pieces. But you yeah, you need some pieces and I'm not saying they're not you're going to get them, but that's yeah. the whole point of anticipation is in a, in a film is you're excited to get to a point where you find out that information and up until that point, you as an audience member are going to be more engaged and want to try to think about it. But I can I can also argue that sometimes engaging your audience too much um can can be a bit dis not disorienting, but 
frustrating because then you're having to do too much of one thing, right? Yeah. You're not paying attention to the film as much because you're trying to figure out how they got to this part. Yeah, exactly. Right? I think it would mess with people's attention spans too because it's just like, what is going on right now? You know what I mean? I think that would be a big part of it. Are you you arguing for the aspect that you think that audiences aren't that mature in regards to figuring that out? I think you could figure it out, but like, I think it's enough to already have not show the robbery and have be picturing what that's about and focus on that and have everything around it. I don't think there's any need to pull anything else. So out. what's your argument? How do you feel about not having the robbery in this film? Oh, I love that. Okay. I really like that. Uh, but I think that that's the whole focus of your, what you're trying to figure out is like, that's the, sto- that's, that, that's I the feel story. like that's how they pitched this film. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. like a film about robbers and thieves without the actual, a without film, an actual heist, a film yeah. about a robbery without the robbery. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is this is great, but I like that focus on that. I don't need to pull. I like I love all everything that surrounds it. I think the robbery and not showing that is is great. But I don't think you need to remove anything else. When I was a kid, um, and I watched this film for the first time, I thought. I think this was one of the first films where I was introduced to non-literary storytelling, mm-hmm. um, because Quentin does it so well. Um, but yeah, this film introduced me to nonlinear storytelling and and uh, and how you could tell a story, but without telling the first part first and just kind of telling it in pieces. Um, which, by the way, he kind of introduces the whole chapter aspect that he and he has in his films in this film, um, which was really cool. He does the Mister Blonde and Mister uh, uh, White and stuff like that. I don't know. He's got like all these aspects, but. Um, so, yeah, anyways, when I watched this film when I was a kid for the first time, I remember thinking that, you know, oh, yeah, he's not going to show us the robbery right now, but because I'd never dealt with non-layer storytelling, I didn't know that you could actually just entirely leave out sections of the film where you would just have to pick up the pieces and just go based off of what the dialogue is. You'd just be like, okay, because they full-on describe the bank robbery and how it's meant to go down like hundreds of times in little pieces, like that whole bathroom scene with Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi, they're basically laying out the whole feel of the bank robbery. Like you're, you know what I mean? Like I find it weird that they're, they're doing a little bit of too much telly telly. Like I'm just kind of like, you're all right about that. There's too much of that, but they need to do some for the audience to understand what they're panic, what they're panicking about. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That's and true. you could argue that they could just be panicked because Tim Roth got shot and that's, that's that. But the, the Steve Buscemi is the rational character. Like he doesn't get, he doesn't care about Tim Roth at all. No, I, he doesn't I, care. Right. So the only reason he, has he only reason... cares about himself. Exactly. He hides under the stairs when people are shooting each other. <laughs> he does. And I so, love that part where yeah, he great. comes he out. kind of pops out. It's like, like this a... wide shot of the whole mortuary and yeah. everyone's dead. And then all of a sudden you see this little face kind of pop out. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just kind of like gets up and runs away. And if you are a listener out there and you've watched this film before and you think that Steve Buscemi gets away in the end, you are sadly mistaken. If you listen to the film, you can hear under the loud moans of Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth that he is shot hardcore. Hey, they're gunshots. Uh, Maybe they missed. I don't know if he's, if he's necessarily shot. I don't they think he got away. Bunch they of do, bullets. but I it's think it was implied. a gunfight. But then, why are they yelling "Get your hands up" after the gun? I think that maybe he fights. shot them, and then he ran out of bullets. And then I would assume he pulled a uh, Jeremy Renner in the town kind of situation where he ran out of bullets and just walked out. Hmm. Probably shot, got killed, or something. I don't know. It's speculation. I think it's it, for me. It's implied he got shot. It's implied he got shot, but I would believe that he's also he's also a weasel type, so I could see himself yeah. trying to not Survive. die. Yeah. yeah, like his whole character is his 
the character motivation is to just survive. Yeah. yeah. Right? Is the whole that all of our character motivation? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Oh, all right. And on that note. <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of our conversation of the film Reservoir Dogs. How do you think we did, Nick? I think we did pretty well. How do you think we did? Uh, I think we did really well. Um, this film is so much fun to talk about, I realize. Oh, um, yeah. And I haven't seen it in a really long time. And it brings up a lot of memories about how and what it was like to be a kid. Not how it was like to be a kid. What it was like to be a kid. Because I remember watching this film for the first time and being like, oh my god, I want to be a filmmaker. Like, you know what I mean? Because it was just... that this This film has so much of a a filmmaker's film in it, right? Like there are filmmakers out of there that make films, right? But then there are filmmakers out there that are like filmmakers for the filmmaker. Like they're mm-hmm. just like, you can tell that these people watch movies and then they they've make studied their, their craft. They've studied their craft They're but they've studied their craft by not going to school or mm-hmm. having a famous dad or having a famous mom or a famous uncle or whatever the hell, right? They, they actually know what they're doing. they, they studied the craft through watching the craft as opposed to being told how to do the craft. Yeah. They're they like Quentin Tarantino is a perfect example of a visual learner. Yeah. <laughs> like he he adopted his skills through watching the you know other movies as a kid. Yeah. Right? So, I don't yeah. know Zach, how do you think we did? <laughs> oh, it was great. It was yeah. good. I talked about everything I wanted to talk about for sure. Well, that's um, good. But uh, yeah, I again, it's, like you said, it is really, really fun to talk about. And you, watching it again, you're like, it was like, not like I was watching it for the first time. But it was you, like being it, in school again. Well, I, I just with for that, me with those movies, it's Wizard of Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I can enjoy it every single time because it, it's just the dialogue is so good, so good. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I definitely realized that I think I. Watching Reservoir Dogs again and dealing with the nonlinear storyline of uh, of Quentin Tarantino and his kind of thing, um, I definitely miss Pulp Fiction. I haven't seen it in years, and I definitely think that it make this film makes me appreciate Pulp Fiction more. Yeah, um, because I feel like it was like a stepping stone to Pulp Fiction. I feel me. like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are almost like like Pulp Fiction is like take two almost of like reservoir dogs like reservoir dogs is his kind of like film you know he made it it was directorial debut debut but pulp fiction is the better crafted film much more refined a lot slicker this one bigger suit bigger budget so raw this one yeah and again there's there's again like you said there it's a bit there's so much handheld, it's a little bit choppy, but mm-hmm. like it, it's great. But it, you can tell it's his first film. It's his first sure. film, and you can tell it's it's a well made film, though. Like it yeah. holds up. Like you could Absolutely. you could still study this film, kind of like we just did tonight. So. Yeah, yeah. But with that, let's get into our arbitrary reviews of the film. Uh, as we always like to say, we are not film reviewers; we are film discussers. So, Nick, what is your arbitrary review for this film? I give this film one colorful cast. <laughs> that's good that's an old man joke i didn't get it <laughs> you know you didn't get it no explain that one to me <laughs> like, you seriously didn't get it really? no i don't get that joke no. don't tell him okay okay all right well that's fine all right <laughs> so zach out. um everyone in this film has a name 
That's a based color. on a color. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Let me see. Funny. Is that know. all we need to funny. explain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I thought of that, and I was like, no, there's no way. There's well, got to be more did, to it than that. You did this well, old... like a colorful cast is also like a group of different people of like. Yeah, right. yeah. I was thinking like a broken arm. So, Zach, what would you give this film for your arbitrary review? I'd rate this film first things fucking last <laughs> out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line yeah, in this film. So I think good. the other, the best line in the film though is like, "What is it? If you're gonna shoot me in your sleep, you better wake up and apologize." Apologize. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I also love the random like the Joe comment, which is like, "He's like Mr. Blue's dead." He's like, "Dead as Dillinger." It's like, <laughs> it's great. Like, great. <laughs> Thanks. That's yeah. how, that's how you know that Quentin Tarantino wrote this this yeah. script is because it's like. Everything anyone says has to have a thing. Yeah. Like a, a topic's yeah. like, you know, somebody could say like, hey, have you finished that thing down the road? Or have you finished walking my dog? Done as dinner. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, you could just say yeah. done. They're about just... to like, like reach like the climax of this really emotional scene. They're trying to figure out who like was the rat. And this guy's like spouting off references from like mobsters from the 20s. Yeah. It's like, I don't think we needed that. Like, <laughs> but <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> thanks, dude. Dead as Dillinger. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. That's what uh, I would give this movie. What would I give this film? I'd give this film one shot in the gut. Because uh, it is a beautiful film and it gives me a tummy ache. And with that, I think that brings us to the end of another episode of The Real Rant. Zach, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on another episode and still not knowing what the hell is going on with the show. No clue. Yeah. <laughs> not sure where we're at. I've got a, I've got some listening to do, apparently. But uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, like, you guys are on episode 30, right? Like, uh, yeah, closer to 50. Oh, okay. <laughs> Zach, is there one last word you'd like to say before we end the show? <laughs> no. nick is there one last word that you'd like to say purple and scene